It's Thursday, March 31st, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm Hoover's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. Well, I can lay claim to that very dignified job title. I'm not the only Hoover Fellow who's doing podcasts these days. Uh, Check it out for yourself. Go to our website, which is hoover.org. Click on the big button that says Publications. You'll see on the left side of the menu another button that says Podcast. Click on that, and you'll see the whole gamut of what we do here. We have podcasts dealing with economics, law, international affairs, culture, education. You name it, we talk about it. If you want to subscribe to any or all of them, feel free to help yourself. You can also sign up for our monthly Pod Blast, which delivers the best for our podcast, your inbox each and every month. And who knows, maybe this particular uh, episode will show up. Hoover Podcast is one facet of ideas defining a free society. My guest today is my colleague, Paul Peterson. Paul is a Hoover Senior Fellow and the Henry Lee Shattuck Professor of Government and Director of the Program on Education Policy and Governance at Harvard University. Paul Peterson is also a Senior Editor at Education Next, a Journal of Opinion Research, a must-read if you follow education reform. Paul, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Well, thanks, Bill, for having me. I think I've asked you before, but I don't understand your travel, my friend. You spend winters in Cambridge, and then you spend the springs out here. It should be the other way around. You should be wintering oh, in California no, in springtime. I, I nope. come out here in January. Actually, December, <laughs> November is a perfectly decent month on the East Coast. Uh, it's, it's, it's January. Even, even Christmas isn't so bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but January, it's the pits. And uh, it stays that way basically until May. So no, spring arrives in California in you know February or March, but it doesn't arrive on the East Coast until nearly summertime. Uh, so that's it. You're playing for time. You'll go back when the uh, when the weather improves. Yes. Okay. Well played. Well, Paul, let's uh, start today by talking about a column. That appeared recently in The Hill, a column that you co-authored with John Schuf and Jay Green. The headline, the more prestigious the college, the lower the quality of education. Uh, that doesn't make sense, Paul. We're talking about colleges in America where the acceptance rate is something like 4 to 5%, where the degrees are prestigious. So why the more prestigious the college, the lower the quality of education? Well, you know, I can't be sure of this in general, but when you look at uh, the COVID experience, Uh, That's what shows up in the data. You know, about half the colleges uh, closed for the period, uh, not just immediately, though that two-month period when everybody closed down and it was total panic across the land. But when the fall came in 2020, uh, some universities opened up and and others did not. And it was it was more or less 50-50. It's not perfectly 50-50, but it's it's it splits down the middle fairly well. And the others go online. Um, and so the question was: which colleges and universities decide to go online and which have in-person learning? And we know uh, for sure that in-person learning trumps online learning at least in the world we live in today. Now, some of the online people out there would have us believe that eventually online learning is going to be terrific. And I'm, I'm actually enjoying Zoom from time to time. It's better than nothing. And so online learning is better than nothing, but it's not the same thing as in-person learning. So the question is, which colleges had in-person learning and which ones didn't? 
Okay. So the question again of why the more prestigious the college, why would they be more apt to inline uh, to online learning? Uh, let me throw one theory at you, Paul. It's just the nature of the beast. If you are an exclusive university, if you're Harvard or Stanford, an Ivy League school, MIT, Caltech, for example, you know two things. One, that there's a line of people looking to apply to get in as freshmen. And also if people leave the university, there's probably a long line for to the rear of people willing to transfer in. So maybe Paul, it's as simple as just you can afford to roll the dice if you will. Your students, because you know that the demand will always meet the supply. Well, that's absolutely right. I agree with that. That's one of the big factors involved is that uh, the more prestigious colleges don't have to worry about students. Uh, the ones who are, you know, regional colleges or small colleges uh, don't have a big endowment, um, they have to have revenue or they're going to be at risk of having to shut down. So uh, you've got to have your students. And if students are told, well, you got to pay full tuition and you're going to stay home and you're going to learn online, students are going to say, well, maybe I should wait until next year or mm -hmm. maybe I should go to a cheaper place or, or, you know, maybe I should do a gap year or, or something. And, uh, and so if you really need that revenue, you're going to be providing that service. Right. And maybe that's also a reflection. Paul, you mentioned the gap here. I have friends who, whose kids go to, you know, the likes of Harvard and Stanford. I find it very common that they do gap years, sometimes going in before they go into the schools, gap years during. Uh, they find years to extend their four-year experience to five and six. So perhaps COVID in some odd fashion kind of tied in the idea of just their, their IV experience, if you will, in terms of dragging out the degree. Well, you know, the U.S. government really says we want to see how many kids graduate within six years of their initial enrollment. That's the official way you right. look at graduation rates. Mm -hmm. So it's assumed that uh, students don't just march through college in four years like you did, Bill, like I did. Uh, not everybody does that. Uh, people, you know, they may need to work for a year. They may need uh, a break for some reason. There may be family. So there's a lot of reasons why college education uh, is interrupted. And, and many of these are very legitimate reasons. And one quite legitimate reason is to say, I want to go abroad for a year. I want to get another experience out there. Uh, you don't have to go lockstep through college. It is a lot of fun to go lockstep because then you have the same classmates from year to year and you get to know some people really, really well. And that's very important for the rest of your life. But, um, you know, it's not the be all and end all to go lockstep through college. Yeah, it's not. In fact, uh, for years, I've served as an academic advisor at Stanford. And one of the reasons why the one I got advisor is to not only just connect with the kid and talk the kid through any programs, but also to put the brakes on the kid, because at least from the, you know, the, the freshmen I've run into at Stanford, they're all, Paul, they're all 18 going on 40 in terms of kind of knowing what they want to do with their lives and having a plan. And Stanford thinks, yikes, they're just going to go flying through here, you know, in a headlong pursuit to, you know, forming their, you know, they're creating their app and starting their you know, new company, what have you. They want the kid to slow down. Down. But uh, I'm curious about the four to five to six year phenomenon, because, yeah, you went through in four years. I went through in four years. I, I remember Paul working for a California governor back in the 1990s, where we discovered a problem in the UC system, which is that UCs were starting to develop really wretched uh, on-time graduation rates. But you're suggesting now that six years, uh, the government at least is looking at six years. So is this going to become more the norm as we uh, as we grow older as a country that kids are just going to take five and six years to get through a four year? Uh, well, actually, uh, nobody really worries about that. What mm -hmm. people worry about more is the uh, very 
high rates of never finishing uh, college. And this is particularly true of um, two-year colleges. You know, about um, half of those who uh, matriculate at a two-year college never finish the first year. They begin in the fall and at some point they disappear. Uh, you can get a Pell Grant, you know, that pretty much covers all your costs if you go to a, a community college or a junior college. And that Pell Grant uh, is given to you in lumps uh, up front. And so you can get that lump and then you can just, you know, drop out within a week or two. And, you know, uh, you still have gotten your, 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 um, your Pell Grant. So, um, it's amazing the percentage of students who will drop out in the first year and never return. That's the, that's the, uh, the biggest concern. And the reason why they don't is because they're not, uh, well, many of them, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons, of course, but, but many of them just aren't prepared for college. They don't have the necessary wherewithal to perform well enough. And then they get slotted into makeup courses uh, in their first year. And those can be, you know, sort of not very interesting classes uh, to the students and, and, and they're challenged by them because here you finally have to really do your, uh, your math class or, your, or, or show that you can read if you're gonna uh, move on and, and, uh, and then people drop out. Let me throw another theory at your post of why the more prestigious universities would have been reluctant to open up and instead stay online, finances. They can afford to shut down for a year if they want to. I looked up Harvard's endowment, Paul. Uh, it's currently about $53 billion. Um, the endowment at Harvard rose 27% in the 2021 fiscal year for that university. So COVID financially was pretty good for Harvard. And I haven't looked up Stanford's numbers or other Ivy's, but I imagine they're pretty good too. But these universities can survive an odd situation for a year or two if they can just you know tap into their resources, write out their endowments. Well, I do think that's part of it. If you have a big endowment, you have a cushion. And uh, if you don't have students now, it's, it's no one thing. It's all these things put together. You, you, you don't have to worry about the students uh, coming back. You don't, if they, if you do have a slip in enrollment, you can rely on your endowment. Uh, if you, um, if you have the prestige, you're going to get more applicants next year. Uh, all of these things. But I think it comes down to this, you know, the faculty reacted uh, we know that liberals uh, reacted to COVID more than conservatives did. Right. Um, and that's another finding we have is that if you're in a, in a, a blue state, uh, you're a university that's going to shut down because the governor is probably going to shut you down. Uh, if you're in a red state, you're going to be open because uh, the governor is going to uh, encourage you to be open. So uh, there's a there's a, a clear politics involved here as well in the public sector. Uh, when we talk about the private universities, they may be following what's happening in the state more generally, uh, but certainly uh, these state universities are following the politics of the state. Mm -hmm. Now, um, given that um, the liberals really were more fearful of. Uh, COVID than conservatives were. Right. And given the fact that almost all faculty members are on the liberal side of the political spectrum, there was tremendous pressure from faculty on the administration not to open. 
to go online. Actually, it's not so bad teaching online. You don't have to go to work. You can do it from your office. And the upper middle class, generally speaking, didn't find the COVID shutdown to be a miserable experience. Of course, there were certain industries uh, which were affected, uh, whatever your uh, income was. But by and large, this was a challenge more for working people, people who had to show up in order to get paid. And so, um, so that's why universities were inclined to shut down. They got a lot of pressure from their workforce we don't want to go to work. So right. then the, it, you're not going to open up unless you really need to open up and uh, serve the students. Who do you put first, students or faculty? So the prestige universities put their faculty, the, the people who are on the uh, delivery side as their number one priority, and the, and the universities and places where um, where you really needed to operate in order to keep yourself going, you you didn't have that luxury. You had to you had to serve the students. Right. Let me throw one other factor in there, Paul. And that's bureaucracy. Um, a large, prestigious university is an expensive operation. Stanford, I think, is about a seven billion dollar annual operating budget. For example, um, Stanford during COVID made a point of sending out rather lengthy emails to employees such as myself to update you on policy, inform me what you had and and, and had not to do, what you could and could not do. Uh, Paul, the one thing about these uh, emails, they were just exhaustively long. I just read as if they were written by committee, which I suspect they were. Um, my, my point being here that universities have large bureaucracies built in them. If you're a swashbuckling university president and you say, by God, we need to open up the schools, you would have to run through an incredible bureaucracy to actually make it happen, Paul. So maybe, maybe this is an example also of how bureaucracy leads to paralysis, if you will, that even if you wanted to be bold and daring and open up, I'm not sure the way schools are structured would allow you to do that. Well, you would, you would have to get this through a complex committee. And in that committee, all these fears uh, that liberals tend to have would get expressed. And you would have to then uh, balance uh, your, uh, your need for, for revenue flow against you know, these, these other considerations. And so it's perfectly natural that any institution that you know, has the uh, wherewithal to uh, to sort of hold off is going to be tempted to do so, uh, given, uh, given, as you say, the bureaucratic pressures that are on them. And of course, bureaucracies have grown a lot in higher education. We have uh, the number of non-faculty members to faculty members has been steadily growing for decades. So we, mm -hmm. we have twice as many non-faculty. I don't even know what the number is in higher ed. I know that uh, in uh, K-12 education, which I study more closely, that the the growth rate is twice as fast in the among those who are non-teachers as among those who are teachers, as as uh, high schools and and elementary schools are hiring all kinds of guidance counselors and administrators and crossing guards and bus drivers and everybody except the people who are in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So one thing that swashbuckling president would have to do, Paul, is he or she would have to obviously deal with the faculty, 
who, as you're suggesting, may not be too wild about going back into the classroom. They also have to deal with parents of, uh, of kids enrolled there. I'm kind of curious, Paul, if you've seen any studies, any anecdotal evidence of parents pushing back against elite universities, demanding that they open up, or are parents just happy to have those kids in their school and they're willing to go along with the year of virtual learning, be it on the East Coast, the West Coast, wherever their kids are, just as long as they're in that school? Well, uh, the rumors that I hear out is that the applications to the elite institutions have skyrocketed. Right. And they've skyrocketed for two reasons. One, there were a lot of kids who took a gap year and right. now they got a, so you got two classes applying for the same number of positions. Because mm -hmm. you got, you know, last year's high school graduates and then this spring's high school graduates. So. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is gonna persist downstream. So that's one factor. Uh, the other factor is because of the um, expectation that the Supreme Court is going to rule against Harvard University in, in this coming fall and is going to say, you can't um, have um, you know, um, a diversity policy that says you can give people from certain uh, ethnic backgrounds uh, preference Right. Uh, you, you, their universities are adjusting their policies, and they're adjusting their policies by saying we're not going to look at test scores. Right. So test scores are disappearing as a requirement for admission, mm -hmm. and that means that a lot of people think they might get in. So right. you're getting. So really, the demand at the elite universities is actually escalating. It's not going backwards. Right. I want to get to test scores in a minute because a very elite university just changed its policy on this, which I think you are aware of because it's a neighbor of yours in Cambridge. But we'll get to that in a second. Uh, Paul, there's a rather remarkable piece in the National Review the other day by a gentleman named Joel Kotkin, who is a, a presidential fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman College. He is also the uh, older brother of Stephen Kotkin, the Hoover Institution senior fellow. Um, the headline of this article, if our listeners want to look it up, is called The Most Dangerous Class. And Paul, it's a fascinating article in that he describes um, college graduates as dangerous in this regard, that they're overeducated and underemployed. And what Mr. Cotkin describes is young people with too much time on their hands and um, they're out of college, they're not finding work and they're restless and they go to extremes. And he talks about this in terms of say being overzealous in terms of being climate warriors, also zealous in their politics, turning to the likes of Bernie Sanders and AOC. Um, your, thoughts, your thoughts on this, the so-called dangerous class? Well, I was just in Jordan, uh, and that's what I heard from the guide there. Uh, and it may be true in Jordan because uh, a lot of uh, people go on to college there, and, and a lot of people come out and they're ending up uh, driving Uber. Uh, so, right. and, and, you, and you see this, Paul, with the Arab Spring in the uh, in the previous decade that this was young college graduates in part were, were rising up against governments. Right, and that's I think it's also true in Egypt and. Um, in general in the Middle East uh, and, and probably in other parts of the world. Uh, we, may, we have been uh, educating or at least having uh, young people go to school. Mm -hmm. uh, our, the data suggests they're not learning much in school in the developing right. world, um, but they keep on going on to the next tier because there's a lot of subsidies uh, from international organizations to facilitate the growth of the educational system. There's very little in the sense of making sure that 
the years spent in school actually translate into learning, uh, this is a huge problem worldwide. This is not a problem uh, limited to the United States. It's even more extreme elsewhere. So that's, um, that is an issue in some places, Bill. I don't think it's a big issue in the United States. I'm not sure I agree with this article. I think that in the United States, we know that if you have a four-year degree, you will earn considerably more over the course of your lifetime than if you have a high school diploma. And so a two-year degree is somewhere in between. Now, for those who are going to a two-year college, it, you could make the argument that it's a bit of a waste of time, especially if you're going to drop out in the first year. But right. for those who actually go and get a four-year degree, the, and today the demand for workers is so massive that uh, whatever truth there might have been to that, and I don't think there ever was much truth, mm -hmm. um, it's just not the case that that people, if they want to work, will find employment. Right. Um, 2021 book, uh, Paul, called Academically Adrift, Limited Learning on College Campuses, uh, University of Chicago Press put it out. Uh, interesting book, Paul, it cites data from student surveys and transcript analysis. Um, it tracked academic gains or stagnation of 2,300 students of traditional college age enrolled in a range of four-year to colleges, four -year colleges and universities. Um, Paul, in the book, the students took the collegiate learning assessment, which is designed to measure gains in critical thinking uh, at various points before and during their college educations. Uh, the results of this, Paul, 45% of students did not demonstrate any significant improvement in learning during the first two years of college. 36% of students did not demonstrate any significant improvement in learning over four years of college. Uh, on top of that, you have 32% of students each semester not taking courses with more than 40 pages of reading assigned a week. Half didn't take a single course in which they had to write more than 20 pages over the course of a semester. This is not college as I remember it. <laughs> well, uh, all that uh, may, may be, may be a, quite accurate. Uh, we do know that there's an advantage to going to college uh, I don't know what skills you learn in college, whether they're social skills or uh, whether they're connections. A lot of people think it's just the connections you get in college and it's just the credential that you acquire, uh, acquire that gets you uh, uh, ahead in the job. But uh, credentials aren't going to be worth much unless they're meaningful. So there's got to be something meaningful there uh, because we do know that... Um, we do know that once you go to work with a college diploma, you're going to do better in life. And what exactly people learn in college is really hard to put your finger on because actually when you go to college, there's many colleges out there. There's many um, degree programs. If you're going into a science program, whether it's chemistry or biology or physics or whatever, you're going to have a pretty demanding uh, educational experience. But if you want to, you can go into the soft subjects out there. And the one that I am most concerned about is the education program, because we're, uh, you can get a job as a teacher if you just take a certain number of courses, mm -hmm. as long as you are given some kind of a grade in that course and allowed to pass that course. So you get that education credential and the teacher goes out there and may be exactly as this study describes. And then they go into a classroom and they don't have the necessary 
educational experience themselves to be a good teacher. Furthermore, the kinds of colleges that uh, teachers tend to get educated in are the weakest institutions, the least selective institutions out there. And so if you imagine it's the least demanding program in the least selective institutions, um, it may be, um, you know, it, it, that's who we are asking uh, to uh, educate our children. So let's go back to that idea of uh, coming out of an undergraduate program, being able to teach. Would you suggest adding one more year or one more term in which you are doing hands-on work in a school? Well, basically, I would restructure the whole thing because I wouldn't. I don't think adding a year is is really necessary. We have so that, people, and so, 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 we, so then you touch right. do is do like uh, they used to do. They used to take you, have you go to school, take some courses for one year, and then they had you teach for a year in a right. classroom under some kind of supervision, where you actually got the real world experience. And there are there is an institution called Relay University, which is now doing that as this is the way they are preparing teachers for the classroom, because we generally know that you learn to do by doing, and especially in a job that requires a lot of practice, as teaching does. It's just not something where book learning does the trick for you. You've got to actually be engaged and we know that the first year teacher the rookie teacher is the worst teacher every study out there shows that a second year teacher is better than a first year teacher a tenth year teacher is probably no better than a ninth year teacher but a second year teacher is much better for so what we should be doing in in colleges is having our teachers go out and actually teach in classrooms under a high quality supervision which uh, is not what is the practice. Right. One other claim in this book, Paul, is that uh, it claimed that students spend on average about 12 to 14 hours a week studying, that much of that time is spent studying in groups. Uh, again, a surprise, because I remember studying back in college, and occasionally we'd study in groups, but generally you kind of went off on your own and studied in your bedroom or in a you know, a little, uh, little you know, carol in the library or something like that. A lot of alone time studying. Yeah, no, this is... Um... Uh, people like to be with their friends. Right. <laughs> I don't know if they're studying in groups or if they're just uh, sitting around with their friends and talking. Then they may be talking about the material, but you know, when you're reading, you have to read. Right. <laughs> you can't talk to other people and read at the same time. Well, that's what gets to the question here. Is studying in groups more effective than studying by yourself? I can argue it both ways. Yes, you can go back and forth in Q&A with each other. On the other hand, easy to get distracted. Well, you have to do both, really. Yeah. I mean, you can't. Uh, this is why in-person learning is so much more uh, uh, valuable than digital learning. Because digital learning, there's no interactions mm -hmm. with other people in a personal way. So if you are just... Uh, learn it, it, it. You can learn that way. It's possible. It, it, you know, you can just isolate yourself and read. Uh, I think Jefferson did that. Uh, he loved to spend his evenings alone reading, and he was an extraordinarily educated man. And I think the better educated you are, the more you learn that way, because there's nobody really that you can talk with who has the same kind of background that you have. So the only way you can can really learn more is to build. Uh, is to, you know, reach out to people who you've never met, who uh, lived 100 years or 500 years before you and learn from them. 
So yes, reading is incredibly important, but it, we also know that talking about what you have read with others is important. So I don't want to say we should not have conversations with others. They're very important. Thank you for mentioning Jefferson, Paul. My family is University of Virginia through and through. And uh, each year, without fail, there is a debate about somehow canceling Mr. Jefferson, taking down the statue in front of the rotunda, taking him out of the university's existence, which is kind of funny since it is called Mr. Jefferson's University or Mr. Jefferson's School. Well, uh, the statue, uh, you know, the first statue that was ever taken down in the United States was of King George. So it was done in New York City, down on the Battery. Uh, but they had a purpose to it. The purpose was to take that uh, lead in that statue and, and turn it into musket balls. So uh, the first deconstruction of a statue at least had a legitimate purpose. Very good. Uh, Paul, let's talk about universities now coming out of the COVID experience. Well, I don't know if we're quite coming out of the COVID experience, but let's talk about what schools have learned the past year or so um, and what may or may not have opened the door uh, to changes or maybe just institutional shortcomings. Uh, first question here, let's talk about enrollment, Paul. So uh, undergraduate enrollment was down three point, uh, this year is down 3.1% from last year. Uh, as according to National Student Clearinghouse Research Center, number of undergraduates in college is now down 5% compared to the pre-pandemic level two years ago, a loss of nearly a million students. Where, where are these million kids going, Paul? Well, um, there are a number of factors at work here. Uh, one is um, we're in this age cohort, we're having fewer people. It's not like our population of 18-year-olds is growing every year as it used right. to. We haven't, we're not replacing our population uh, with, um, uh, with uh, from one generation to the next. So we are, you know, we're going to have fewer students uh, entering colleges in the future, even if the percentage of students remains the same. Now, what's happened in the past is we've been having more kids who are 18 years of age and a higher percentage are going on college. So we've had this endless growth uh, that uh, we thought, you know, would go forever. Uh, well, it's not uh, continuing now. So then we have a declining uh, percentage on top of that, which may be simply uh, COVID because uh, kids were not being educated in high school during COVID. We have overwhelming evidence the latest study from North Carolina is really quite amazing. They show that students, no matter what their age is, whether they're elementary or they're middle school or high school, during the last two years, they learned one year less of learning than previous cohorts had. So in other words, the amount of learning that was taking place during COVID in North Carolina and they have data on every student in North Carolina. They have an excellent study, carefully done. They are showing that the learning rate is half what it was back in 2019. I mean, this is not even talking about what it was like in 2009. This is just comparing it to just before COVID. And uh, that's a tremendous loss of learning, a whole year's worth of learning. And that's... Um, that's so kids aren't going to college because they're not prepared to go to college. And now some of them are, are postponing it for a year. There may be more. 
Um, so the, the irony is we have these, everybody's trying to get into the most elite colleges. So you have over application rates there, but right. the other colleges out there are worried to death that they're not going to get the students this coming year that they, uh, uh, you know, we're projecting that that would be coming. So uh, are we going to have an undereducated generation of students? Yes, I believe that's the case. And we know that the downstream consequences are you will have a less effective workforce if you have a less educated population. And by educated, I don't mean just going to school. I mean, learning something at school. Okay. Um, second thing to talk about here, let's talk about, since you mentioned admissions, uh, news this week, Paul out of Cambridge, Massachusetts, MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, announced this week that applicants once again must submit SAT or ACT scores. Uh, the significance of this, Paul, MIT becomes the first prominent university to reverse a suspension of the requirement that it put in place because of the pandemic. So if we get back to more normal times, Paul, if the pandemic is more the rearview mirror, are we going to see more prestigious universities return to standardized scores? I hope so. Uh, I'm not sure they've given up already. Um, you know, a lot of places are saying you don't have to submit a standardized score. Right. But they don't say you cannot. So to the student who wants to get into the school that's a desirable school, that there's competition for entering, is that student really going to not take the SAT? Aren't they going to do everything they can in order to make an impression unless they think their SAT score is going to hurt them? So a lot of students are still taking that test. Now, what MIT said in the reason they gave was, we are worried about kids coming from um, un, you know, unlikely places, uh, the, the diamonds in the rough. Right. And um, I feel like, uh, you know, I'm very sympathetic to kids who come from, uh, who are diamonds in the rough. Cause I like to think that I was at least, uh, I, at least I was an onyx in the rough. I may not have been a diamond, but I was, you know, not, not so bad. And uh, yet I, I came from a small uh, town, a small school, a school where nobody had ever gone to an uh, Ivy League uh, school before. Uh, you, you just went to your neighborhood uh, college. Uh, so, you know, for me, uh, tests were an avenue that I could uh, do something different. Uh, with my life than what all of my friends in high school did. So um, that was, they were incredibly important because all, all the other indicators out there uh, don't, don't work for a lot of uh, people from uh, poor neighborhoods or poor communities. Uh, and they're, they're, they may be unusual gems and uh, that's what you want to have in your uh, if you really want to create equal opportunity, you want to be able to find the gems out there and, and uh, provide them with the education that they can profit from. And that's exactly what these tests were designed to do initially. That's precisely why universities began to do that. In fact, that's why the U.S. Armed Forces invented standardized tests back in World War I. They wanted to find the best soldiers and they wanted to get them from places where you didn't necessarily, couldn't count on 
high quality people being readily available. And so they invented this test to say, let's get the very best people we can to send them off to fight in France. And, uh, you know, I'm not so sure that was a great idea from the point of view of uh, uh, the, the purpose, because I've never been sure about World War I as to whether or not it was a noble purpose, but uh, certainly it was effective. And uh, for colleges to give that up, the only, um, the only justification that I can think of for that is that they're doing it to uh, uh, protect their own um, uh, desires to pretend that they are uh, uh, a progressive organization. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's where I wanted to go next. Um, I'm curious if not putting, if not doing, taking the test, not putting test scores in your application is a red flag for admissions officials, Paul, or not? Because I look at a lot of prestigious schools each spring and I read their press releases when they announce their classes. I'm always curious about the acceptance rate. And what I noticed, the more prestigious the school, the higher up, almost the lead in some cases, they always like to brag about one thing, the percent of their incoming class that is first in their family to go to a college. So it seems to me that a lot of these schools, Paul, they're looking at, you know, life arc and narrative. And so maybe maybe test scores don't matter that much if you don't take them. Well, you know, um, it, it, yeah, people say, uh, we look at the essays. Right. Well, I, you know, the essays are the most easily um, manipulated uh, part of an application. Okay. Uh, you can go get your uh, essay uh, written by a professional in fact, you can pay a professional to do it. And if you have a lot of money, you can get a very high quality one. And, you know, you can write poor little me about almost any individual out there. All of us have suffered in some way in the course of our lives. Any 18 year old will have be able to come. Oh, woe is me. And right. I've overcome up this and I've done all these good works. And but you just the better the writer the more convincing this will be. I cannot believe that this is an extremely valuable uh, tool for identifying the truly, uh, th th that diamond in the rough that, uh, that universities claim that they're seeking. Okay, uh, now let's move on to third topic here. And that is the ongoing question, Paul, of speech on campus, if you will. Uh, story this week out of Tennessee. Tennessee lawmakers are considering a bill that would prohibit students or employees of public colleges from being disciplined for refusing to support so-called quote unquote divisive concepts. Uh, would allow them to sue public colleges and universities if they feel they've been fairly unfairly punished. The bill Paul outlines 16 so-called quote unquote divisive concepts. Uh, that would include, for example, the idea that Tennessee or the United States is a, quote, fundamentally or irredeemably racist or sexist society. Uh, also, Paul, the idea that, quote, an individual by virtue of the individual's race or sex is inherently privileged, racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or subconsciously. In other words, Paul, this is a pushback. Now, this is a very red state, grant you, but it's a pushback against just wokeism amok on campuses. Well, you know, it's going to be hard to win that lawsuit, I think, right. because uh, everybody's going to say freedom of speech. We can't interfere with that. And, uh, you know, the bias that exists in higher education right. uh, is not going to be overturned by a lawsuit, I'm afraid. Um, it's going to have to be it'll it's going to have to take a lot of a lot of work. Probably the the event that is going to do more to balance thinking in our university than anything else has nothing to do with all of the 
legal maneuvers that are going on, but with the war in the Ukraine. And we now have a generation that is witnessing the kind of uh, Stalinist move that uh, my generation witnessed when we were young. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had uh, Korea, we had the communists uh, marching into a, 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 a country just that was just living its life and 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 trying to uh, yeah, take had, control of it. You had Hungary in 1956 and Czechoslovakia in 1968. Yeah, there you go. So I mean, but there were all kinds of examples out there of of uh, why uh, communism was evil. We knew it, and uh, people have forgotten that since 1990. Right, and they started forgetting it in 1980. So you know, that's a whole. That's a nearly a. What's that forty-year period of time, and uh, and now we're we're being reminded of it. Okay, two more items, Paul. Then I will let you go. Uh, let's talk about the financial side of things for a minute. Student loans and affordability. Uh, every year, the Princeton Review Paul asks high school seniors for their quote-unquote dream college, and the list is out for this year. Uh, congratulations, you own the one and two spots. Stanford is one, Harvard is two. Uh, the aforementioned MIT is third. NYU, New York University is fourth. Princeton five, Columbia six, Yale seven, UCLA eight, uh, followed by UT uh, Austin. Uh, overall, this is interesting, Paul, because um, some of these are public uh, colleges, some are private. The average price of a private college now, Paul, is $55,800. Uh, the average price of a four-year in-state public college is now $27,330 per the college board. Uh, there's a question moving forward, Paul, not just of who goes to college, which is another debate in itself. I think there are 20 million Americans now going to college, and we can discuss who should be maybe going to a trade school versus an undergraduate school and so forth. But there's a question, Paul, about how you're going to pay for this. Uh, and we fast forward now to uh, from Joe Biden as a candidate saying that uh, he favored uh, some partial uh, uh, forgiveness of student loans. I think he wanted a $10,000 forgiveness of loans. He put out a budget this week, Paul, and there's zero language in the budget about uh, any kind of student loan forgiveness. So uh, has student loan forgiveness kind of uh, died out for the moment, Paul, or is it uh, still a faint beating heart at Congress? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure it's going to continue uh, one way or another. There's been a lot of forgiveness in the past and, and there's going to be more. It's very popular with those with the loans. Mm -hmm. um, it is a transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich uh, because who goes to college is people who come from um, families that are better educated and have higher income. And uh, the people who do go to college earn more income and are better educated themselves and will have a better life. And the people who don't have that are the ones who will have to pay the taxes when the money is given to these people. So, uh, uh, you know, subsidization of higher education, which is massive in Europe. I mean, it's, uh, it's a general practice in Europe, is the most regressive, most unprogressive policy uh, that uh, one can imagine. And, and if you think about it, there's been a whole set of policies that help to explain why the working class has become more Republican and why the um, upper middle class and the, uh, the, especially the upper middle class has become more democratic. The professionals and the, uh, and the certain segment of the business community, it's because uh, the progressive position is really a, a position where it says, let's give a lot of things to the upper middle class. For example, let's focus on climate change. 
that's that doesn't cost the upper middle class very much, and it and it, uh, it 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 appeals to them as and then and then the subsidies of electric cars is well that's the upper middle class that can afford those sixty thousand dollar cars. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's uh, for giving student loans a whole pattern of its. Uh, uh, subsidizing higher education, in other words, there's a whole wide range of policies that are being uh, uh, proposed today by the left wing of the Democratic Party, which are not really aiming to deal with the real needs of poor people. Well, here's a simple fix, Paul: free college. Well, we're close to that, you know, and it's extremely popular among students, needless to say, and sure. has general uh, general support in the public. Although when it comes right down to it and they learn what the, it's going to do to their tax bill, they're not so enthusiastic. Right. Also, there'd be just a question of who would be entitled to free college, uh, the working class family in East Palo Alto versus the not so working class family over in regular Palo Alto. You know, one getting by paycheck to paycheck, the other one living in a $5 million house. Should all of those kids get the same free college or perhaps some of those kids are a little more deserving it than the others? Well, the more you give things to everybody, the more the upper middle class will benefit. That's good. Final question for you, Paul. Um, I uh, attended several years ago, my father who attended the University of Virginia. Uh, he loved his university very much. And at UVA, when you uh, make it 50 years as an alumnus, you join what is called the Jefferson Society. Speaking of that uh, man who some people want to ban, the Jefferson Society. And it's a wonderful ceremony. They do it in the spring. Paul in Charlottesville is just at its finest. The university is uh, uh, let out a couple of weeks previously, so the kids aren't around, so the everything is pristine and clean. Um, and if there were a soundtrack to this, it would be Doris Day singing Sentimental Journey, because what Virginia does for one night, Paul, is they dine you outside and professors talk, and you sit with your classmates, you know what you do? You talk about what you're doing 50 years ago. Uh, I discovered much of my horror. My dad didn't have any bad stories. It was all his drunken frat mates, but not he. He was apparently a pretty, uh, pretty straight arrow in college. But there's a method to the madness here and that the university wants you so much to think fondly and sentimentally about your university that you want to dig deep. But here's the question, Paul. I think now of my godson who lives down in Los Angeles. He graduated from Dartmouth um, last year. His university existence was just ripped up in half. It was very sad. He had two years in Hanover and things were just going swimmingly. And he was setting up for a great third and fourth year. Then COVID comes along and he spends the last two years of his college learning on a computer back in Los Angeles. Now, he likes his university. He's proud of his degree. But I've just contend, Paul, when he goes back for his 50th anniversary, he's not going to have the same buddy stories that my father did because he was not there for four years. So this is a very rambling way of asking if you think that COVID down the road is going to have an effect on universities, especially when it comes to donations, especially when it comes to alumni loving their university, because there might be this generation of COVID kids who maybe don't think as warmly of their school because of what they had to go through. Uh, that's an interesting question. I've, I've thought much the same as you, uh, Bill. I have yet to see it uh, on the part of students themselves. They seem as attached to their university, even though they have had a less um, fulfilling uh, college uh, experience than students in the past have. Uh, they are incredibly understanding of why it is that their school had to be shut down. They're not nearly as critical as I am. You know, my own view is that the COVID risks were much, much less for young people 
and really even any healthy person, the risks were not that great, but that's not the way it's perceived by students. So uh, the only thing I can say is, well, in 50 years, we'll know. Right. I guess also it's a question 50 years from now if we still feel the same in terms of prestige and status about these universities, because you could say that maybe your class of 2021 got really messed up by COVID, but maybe 30 years later when your child is applying to the college, you might think, you know, I still want my kid to have that degree. Well, we'll see whether legacy uh, is still a factor in admission uh, 20 years from now. It, it may or may not be. We, I do think we're going to see changes in higher education, you know, given the high prices you referred to and given the alternative ways in which people can get educated. Uh, this is not a stable situation we have today. We're going to see definitely change in our higher educational system. Exactly how it's going to go um, is, um, is, is up in the air. Uh, we did learn from COVID that in-person learning does have uh, a lot to say for it. So, but um, we shall, it's, it's, a, it's a dynamic situation for sure. All right. When you say change, what would be change for the better, Paul? Well, change for the better would be more learning. <laughs> you know, I think the faculty uh, are extremely self-indulgent. Uh, and we've, we've asked the faculty, the faculty are judging themselves not on, and, and their colleagues, not on the basis of their teaching, but on the basis of their research. And this may make sense in some fields and in some institutions where cutting edge research is actually taking place. I like to feel that I am participating in that kind of world. But uh, for most college teachers, the kind of research they're doing is not contributing substantially to the growth of knowledge worldwide. And um, there, the need for them to be effective teachers in the classrooms is, is much, uh, should be the central concern. And so I would say maybe some of these colleges out there that did not respond to COVID by shutting down but actually kept on going. Maybe these colleges are also saying, we've got to have good teachers in the classroom. And maybe that's uh, a good thing that we do have colleges under fiscal pressure because they will expect that teachers are to be effective and uh, that students will get a genuine experience when they go to college. So I would like to see more of that. It sounds like you're suggesting a new generation of tough deans and provosts. Well, uh, small competitive colleges, I'm a very small private competitive colleges are the historic base of our higher education system. Mm -hmm. They were always very good colleges, even if they didn't have a great prestige and if they always were sort of on, uh, on the edge of, of not making it. But these, uh, we now know that if you go to a small private college, you're much more likely to graduate within four to six years than if you go to a big state university. Right. That's not going to happen to you. But the big state university is gradually taking over our higher educational system and these small private colleges are at risk. That's, that's not healthy. Okay. Final question, Paul, what are you working on these days? What's, what's on your mind? Well, I do have a new uh, study out that I uh, would like everybody to, to learn about. And that is uh, we have smarter kids than ever before. Uh, they're, they, uh, they were born 
into a world where they were given better nutrition, both in the womb and shortly after bo being born. They are exposed to fewer contagious diseases, fewer environmental risks. And if you look at their math performance at age uh, nine, it's amazingly higher than it was 50 years ago. It's, there's no there's a, just no comparison. It's, it's just a, it's a, it's a huge increase in the ability of kids to do math at age nine, which has been ignored by a lot of people out there. Now, reading, it's not so good because reading, you have to be taught. Math is, is, you know, it's an analytical skill. There's some teaching involved, but a lot of it is sheer uh, brain power. And we have evidence from IQ studies that IQs of people have been steadily rising over the course of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, we have people with much higher ability levels today than we once had. What's interesting is that our educational system is not taking advantage of that. So that's what I'm working on today. And how does the system fail at not taking advantage of that? What, what is it doing wrong? Well, we have a lot of um, aspects of our educational system that we've been talking about during the course of this conversation, Bill. And uh, one of them is... Uh, that we have unions that uh, protect teachers who aren't effective teachers. We have uh, teacher preparation programs that aren't really turning out the best and the brightest. And uh, we, uh, our expectations are very low. So um, those are among the factors that are okay. negative. Yep. Okay, well, I look forward to reading this study. It sounds fascinating. All right, well, thank you, Bill. Thank you, Paul. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. I reference Paul's work with Education Next. Uh, you can find Education Next on Twitter at, at Education Next. That's spelled as you might expect, E-D-U-C-A-T-I-O-N-N-E-X-T, at Education Next. Uh, I mentioned our website at the beginning of the podcast. That is hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Paul Peterson and his Hoover colleagues to your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.